I can hardly begin to tell you how glad I am to be here. This is the first time that I've been in England, much less in Oxford. Uh, I think that uh, being at Oxford is, is probably the best place in England that I could have first visited, and I'm especially happy to be with all of you on an occasion like this. This is a great honor and a thrill to me. Now, we're all speaking about the development of law in Aquinas. My topic is, uh, of course, human law develops. Do, do natural, can natural and divine law develop? By the development of law, I mean any sort of change in law, but which is, especially which is cumulative and directional. In other words, when the law is systematically getting over time either better, hopefully, or worse, or when the law is systematically responding to something else, some external condition which is getting either better or worse. And sometimes we can find the term to getting better, just as in when we speak of the development of doctrine, we're speaking of a, of a good development. According to Thomas Aquinas, human law can develop over time in several ways. The development of human law is not my main topic, but I think we need to begin with this in order to see how, by, by contrast, uh, we can think of this in connection with divine and natural law. Now, probably it doesn't just surprise us that he thinks that human law can develop, uh, since in the sense of getting better in our time, we have come to expect human law to develop, haven't we? Um, certain political factions are called progressive. Um, we, there's this belief in progress. In fact, in our day, the utopian tendency has become very strong. Uh, dangerously so, which it's alarming because the shortest route to dystopia is through a would-be utopia. But that's not my present topic. It would be a lot of fun to talk about, and there are so many things in giving a talk like this that you have to just cut off. You know, editors used to call this murdering your darlings. They, they, they meant uh, uh, cutting off all of the things that, you, that would be wonderful to talk about, but which you just can't. What I do want to talk about is this. Certainly human law can develop, but my real question is whether divine and natural law can develop. And for at least three reasons, I'm going like this, but I should be going like this. You have to ignore my fingers. It might seem that the answer is no. It might seem that the answer is no. How could they develop? First, divine wisdom is perfect. Second, human nature cannot change in essence. Third, our final end cannot change. Now, whether or not we get there, God made us for beatitude. So for these three reasons, you might think that natural law and divine law could not change, and this is all true. And yet in other surprising ways, St. Thomas maintains not only that natural and human law and divine law can develop, but that they have. Now, are these developments of such a nature as to give comfort to relativists or antinomians? No, but they are real. So let's see how. I'll begin then with a quick, development, quick review of development in human law and then see how the development of natural or divine law is similar or different. St. Thomas is cautious about change in human law. He stresses that such changes should take place only when the improvement is great enough to offset the harm of change as such. Even a change in the direction of a better law can be harmful just because it is a change. It unsettles people's habits. It may confuse them. It may, make them in, it may put them in doubt as to the validity of the law itself. There may be all sorts of problems, 
And yet, sometimes the, the, uh, the gain from the change is great enough to offset that harm. And this can happen. If the reasons for the changes are cumulative, then the changes themselves may be cumulative, and we have development. Now, the laws themselves can develop. Their application can also change and develop. Let's talk about development in the laws themselves. This can happen for two reasons. One is a change, he says, in the condition of the people. Now, I suppose that today we tend to think of the condition of the people as, I don't know, do they, do they, uh, do they use Blu-ray or do they use some other standard? But he means primarily a change in the degree of their virtue and the quality of their moral character. Suppose that up to now, the people have chosen their own magistrates. They have what he calls a free community. Uh, they've chosen their own magistrates. This is something that he considers very good because he says free human beings should not be ruled as slaves. But suppose that over time the people have become so corrupt that they're willing to sell their votes. Well, now it may be better that they lose the privilege of choosing their rulers. There has been a change in the law. In this case, what we might call the human constitutional law, the arrangement of the regime itself, uh, because of a change in the condition of the people, in the moral condition of the people. The other reason for change in the laws themselves is that the legislatures have reconsidered and attained a better understanding that they had before. It's not that the condition of the people has been changed, but it's that a law that they thought was good before, they now realize leaves something to be desired. For example, in our own time, over the years, evidence has accumulated that the institution of so-called no-fault divorce, I'm not sure if you use the same expression for it here in the UK, yes, thank you, um, that this institution is significantly weakened, among other things, the motivation to save a troubled marriage, that on average, uh, divorce reduces the well-being of both former spouses and their children much more than had previously been thought. After a no-fault divorce, the, the economic uh, uh, well-being of the, of the former husband is, is usually improved, but of the wife, of the, of the, wife, the other spouse, is, is uh, much diminished. Uh, there are many, many drawbacks, even apart from the natural law teaching that in a certain sense uh, marriage is indissoluble. I wouldn't say that legislators have caught on to all of this yet, but they are getting there. This is a change in the understanding of the legislators. Now, changes in the condition of the people and changes in the understanding of the legislatures, uh, legislators, I've drawn a distinction between them. But of course, I don't mean that these two things are unrelated. They may, in fact, be closely related. For if, if legislators did, for instance, change their minds about no-fault divorce, it will be large, if this does happen, it will be largely because the advent of the system of no-fault divorce changed the pre-existing of the condition of the people for the worse, and they're catching on. Uh, but if they ignore the evidence and persist, then the reason is likely to be that having been, uh, this is another connection between their understanding and the condition of the people, if they ignore the evidence, the reason is likely to be that having been chosen by the same people, their own condition has also changed for the worse. Their understanding has become uh, more defective. So in these two ways, the laws may change in themselves. 
But St. Thomas says that laws can also change in the way that they're applied. We don't necessarily think of a change in the application of the law as a change of law, but he calls it that. So let's do that too. One way that this can happen, he says, is through dispensation. Perhaps I'm just speaking to the choir here. Uh, Father Richard said that, said that as Dominicans, you know all about dispensation. Well, I didn't know that, Dominic <laughs> that Dominicans knew all about dispensation, but, um, but let's run through this anyway. Uh, this means that public authority declares an exception to the law. Dispensation actually has a broader meaning than that, but at present we're just talking about declaring an exception to the law. Now the authorities might authorize dispensations for all kinds of reasons, even bad reasons, but we're not considering bad reasons at the moment, uh, like to benefit their cronies, giving an exception, but it is right for them to authorize dispensations when circumstances arise in which, even though the law is good and just, in itself. Following it to the letter might be contrary to the common good because, you know, laws have to be expressed as general rules. You can't say, for instance, it would be absurd to, to try to pass a, a law about uh, speed limits on the roadways in which you said, well, in residential neighborhoods, you should, you should not exceed so many kilometers per hour. Um, Unless, of course, somebody is driving after you and shooting at you with a gun and you need to escape, and unless your wife is in the front seat and she's about to give birth and you need to get to the hospital quickly, you couldn't possibly build in all the appropriate exceptions. The law it has to be expressed simply and in the form of general principles, and so it is obvious that, there, that occasionally exceptions will have to be made. Uh, sometimes, ideally, this should be done with consultation of authority. Sometimes there's no time to do that. Well, when, for example, imagine we don't have walled cities or fortresses anymore, although some uh, residential enclaves are becoming like that again uh, because of fear of crime. But let's imagine the old kind of walled city or fortress. This is one of Thomas Aquinas' examples. The law decrees that for protection from enemies, the gates of the city have to be closed at sundown. It's sundown now. And the gatekeeper is about to close the gates. Well, in the distance, though, he sees the city's defenders, the army, uh, racing back to the city. They've lost uh, a military engagement. They are being pursued by the enemy. If he does follow the rule, follow the law and shut the gates now, they'll be trapped outside and they will be cut to shreds. If he leaves the gates open just long enough for them to get in, then they'll survive to fight again the next day. Since there's no time to consult authority, he takes the initiative and he, let's hope, keeps the gates open. That's okay. All right, that's by dispensation. Second, the application of the law may change by way of interpretation. In other words, public authority decides that henceforth, the law is to be applied in such and such a way, not the way it has been before. We are going to take this general requirement as meaning this and not as meaning that. One might think that only the rulers of the people could do this, that only the, uh, the authorities could uh, change the law by interpretation. Interestingly, and this is relevant to one of the questions that was asked about common law and, uh, and, uh, and Roman law and Napoleon Napoleonic uh, uh, the Code Napoleon, um, Thomas accepts an old maxim of Roman law that the custom of the people, the custom of the people has the force of law. 
abolishes law and what is relevant to our case is the interpreter of law. Why? Why, this, why would that be the case? Because he says, as uh, Father Richard explained, law is an ordinance of reason for the common good made by competent public authority and promulgated or made known. Now we think of governments doing those things, but uh, these satisfying these four conditions, but in a free community, the people themselves have the authority, there's public authority, to reason, to make ordinances of reason, about what the common good requires, and they do promulgate their decisions, not by words, but by repeated actions. Everybody knows that the rule is, uh, although it's never been promulgated in words by anyone, that you wait for people to get out of an elevator before you get in, that you line up before purchasing something, a snack from, from a, a wagon on the street. Uh, this is promulgated by repeated actions, even enforced. If people didn't do it, they'd be pushed out of the, out of the way, I suppose, or scolded. Uh, from this point of view, a good custom, the reason a good custom can interpret law is that it is a form of law. It satisfies the, four, the same four criteria that all uh, edicts must satisfy to be law. So it is a law. Suppose, for instance, that the law requires juries to convict only on good evidence. But suppose the juries consistently refuse to convict on the basis of evidence from persons of notoriously bad character. What you would have in a case like this is, in effect, a change in the law because the people, through this custom of, of, of uh, refusing to do this, have given an interpretation of what shall count as good evidence. So we have change in the laws per se, and we have change in the laws in the, in the application of the laws. Change in the laws per se, either because of a change in the condition of the people or because of a change in the understanding of the legislators. And, uh, and, uh, change in, um, and change in the application of law by dispensation and change in the application of the law by interpretation. Now that's all I'm going to say about change in the development of um, human law in itself. From the next two speakers, especially from, uh, from Dr. Mead, we're going to be hearing a lot more about change in human law. But for my purposes, it's enough to give me a springboard for what I want to say about natural and divine law. What about them? Well, the topics of divine law and natural law are very closely related. Um, according to Thomas Aquinas, every one of, as, as you heard this morning, uh, the, the precepts of the old divine law are distinguished according to whether they are moral precepts, ceremonial precepts, or judicial precepts. But every one of the moral precepts, which are, by the way, also the foundation stone of the ceremonial and, and, uh, and judicial precepts. Every one of the moral precepts of the Old Testament divine law belongs to the natural law. He's very explicit about this. Well, that here too, changes can take place in the condition of the people. You might think that that's irrelevant. You might think, well, so what? That the, change of, that the condition of the people can change because Changes can't, the other thing was changes in the understanding of the legislature, but there's not going to be any change in the understanding of the divine legislator. His wisdom is already perfect. Uh, is it really irrelevant that the condition of the people can change for divine law? Well, it's true that neither natural or divine law can change in the moral basics. 
the kinds of duties that the Ten Commandments include and summarize if they're understood properly. Um, but there's much more to the matter than that, and the changing con condition of the people also turns out not to be the only consideration here. So let's look at this more closely. Now, as before, I want to begin by considering how natural and divine law can change in themselves. They can't change in their basics, but St. Thomas says that in their details, they can change both by what he calls addition, something can be added to them, and by subtraction, something can be taken away from them. That phrasing is extremely odd to our ears, or at least it is to mine, but the idea is very straightforward. The idea is that although God is the author of the basics of moral duty, humans relying on these basics, not in independence from them, can add something to the details. So, how so? Well, the first way in which he, Thomas Aquinas says something can be added to the natural law is what we might call the pinning down of details, which might be arranged in more than one way. Uh, Thomas Aquinas calls this determination. Determination, it sounds like every time we're making a law, we're determining something, right? Whenever we're thinking, we're determining that this is the case and not that. No, determination here has a more specific meaning. It means that you've got a general rule, but there are some things that are left open. You have to fill in the blanks. You have to pin down the details. For example, natural law requires taking care for the safety of other people, of course. But human authorities may decide whether to do this by requiring people to drive on the right side of the road, as in the US, or on the left side of the road, as in the UK. Now, prior to that legislative decision, there was no moral duty to keep to that side of the road. But subsequent to that legislative decision, there is a moral duty. How curious. Human beings have added something to the set of our genuine moral obligations by making this enactment. And so what Thomas Aquinas says is that something has been added to the natural law in the sense that it really does obligate us. Um, it isn't hard to see how such a change can be cumulative and directional, to be development in our sense. For example, if the legislature pools risks through a social insurance plan in, in healthcare or something like that, then the entire new areas of moral duties open up. Uh, if the legislature in turn decides that it's made a mistake and revises or repeals this legislation, then these new moral duties are going to dissolve or they are going to take new shapes. Something that Thomas Aquinas doesn't discuss but I think is implied by his discussion here is that certain additions to the natural law can take place because of private acts too. For example, by making promises. Do you have a moral obligation to meet your friend next Tuesday at uh, 10 o'clock uh, to see a, a, a moving picture? Uh, no, you don't. But if you make a promise to your friend that you will do that, a new moral obligation has come, come into existence. Out of nowhere? No. It was possible for it to come into existence because it is a determination of the general, of the, uh, ge your general duty of keeping your promises. But it is something new. So it looks like human private volition can, can bring uh, new obligations into existence too. But let's leave that aside because that doesn't take place by way of legislation. That isn't law. And it's, um, 
in in the in the in the public sense, and so um, uh, it isn't about the development of law. Now, I think it's safe to say that the situation regarding divine law is largely parallel to what we've been just talking about. Just as in the enactment of just as the enactment of human law by determination adds to the secondary precepts of the natural law, although not to its primary precepts, not to the moral basics. So the enactment of, say, canon law by determination adds to the secondary precepts of divine law um, for several reasons. Canon law is broader. The most important of these reasons is that human law is framed in the light of temporal well-being. But canon law is framed in the light of both temporal and eternal well-being which is a matter that the human legislator is not competent to, uh, to, uh, to, to um, issue authoritative uh, determinations about. We have, this is a difficult matter in Thomas Aquinas. He says, um, he says in an, it, 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 happiness may be discussed in two senses. There's our natural happiness and there's our eternal happiness. Um, insofar as, they, as both kinds of happiness, you can call them both happiness because they're both valuable in themselves, not for the sake of something else. I say I want to eat a meal for the sake of happiness, but I don't say I want to be happy for the sake of something else. Uh, I want to be fulfilled, but I don't say I want to be fulfilled for the sake of something else. However, um, ordinary this worldly happiness leaves something to be desired. It is not our final end, our final resting place. It is not everything that we were made for. And so there is our, our uh, eternal well-being as well. And the human law just isn't, isn't able to look at that, but canon law is. All right, that was a sort of a footnote. I apologize, it was a long footnote, and it may have looked as though I was about to open up a whole new section of discussion, but I'm not really, I was just tricking you. Um, let's talk about change in the natural law by subtraction. What on earth does that mean? Again, when, when St. Thomas says that subtractions from the natural law are possible, he does not mean that anything at all can be subtracted from the basics. For instance, the prohibition of adultery will not be repealed because contraceptives have been invented. It will not become licit to steal because the government has made a routine of it. <laughs> Treating one's parents with contempt will not become allowable because the oldsters have not kept up with social changes and don't even know how to log into Facebook. The subtractions, like the additions, lie only in the details, but they are real. Just as something can become obligatory, the genuinely become obligatory that wasn't before, something can cease to be under certain circumstances. Here's an example. One of the basics, one of the things that doesn't change is that I must not steal. One of the details is that if someone has left his property in my safekeeping, I should return it when he asks. Now, the former rule, don't steal, is always binding. But the latter rule isn't. Suppose that my friend leaves his automobile keys with me. He says, would you take care of these for me? I don't have a pocket in my, in my pants. And when he um, asks for their return, he's falling down drunk. In such a case, the rule to return his property doesn't hold. I should, I should say, let me take you home. Let me call a taxi for you. I'll give you your keys tomorrow. So although the obligation to, the obligation to, to, to re refrain from theft is always binding, the obligation to return the, the property that is held in trust when it is demanded 
is not always, but just almost always binding. There can be, as Thomas Aquinas says, certain obstacles that arise to its validity, and so in this case, it doesn't. He says in this case, it's been subtracted from the natural law. Now, just as before, in the beginning, when I was talking about changes in human law, I distinguished between changes in the law per se and changes in the application of the law. Well, that distinction applies here with when, when we're speaking of natural law and divine law, too. Uh, as in the case of human law, so in the case of natural and divine law, we may speak of changes in application. Now, St. Thomas doesn't say much about changes in the application of natural or divine law by way of interpretation, interestingly. There's a lot of room for discussion there and investigation. But he does mention the matter. For instance, he says that allowing soldiers to fight on the Sabbath to protect the nation is not a dispensation from the law. He says it is an interpretation because, I quote, a man is not taken to break the Sabbath if he does something necessary for human welfare. He refers to Matthew 12, where this is confirmed by the words of Christ in a particular case. Well, to understand cumulative and directional changes in the interpretation of natural and divine law, cumulative development by way of interpretation here, we need something more than Thomas Aquinas actually gives us. I'm only going to throw out a suggestion which might be of use to us, but um, it's not from Thomas Aquinas himself. I would suggest that perhaps the best approach to understanding the development of natural and divine law by interpretation would be to adapt the venerable John Henry Newman's criteria for the development of doctrine. Newman, we recall, said that in a true development of doctrine, as contrasted with a bogus one, with some, with some change that isn't authentic, um, a true development means a healthy organic development. He says, the underlying idea, I'm quoting him, retains one of the same type, the same principles, the same organization. Its beginnings anticipated subsequent phases, phases, and its later phenomena protect and subserve its earlier. And it has a power of assimilation and revival and a vigorous action from first to last. And he discusses each of these criteria. To be sure, these aren't easy criteria to apply. They aren't easy to apply in the case of the development of doctrine. If, as I suggest, we were to apply them in the case of the development of natural and divine law, uh, they would be similarly difficult to apply. But I suspect, although I can't prove, that St. Thomas might accept them. They don't seem to be inconsistent with the spirit of his thinking. Well. All right, he doesn't say much then about the development of natural and divine law by interpretation, but he does say a good deal about the development of natural and divine law by way of dispensation. So let's turn to that. There seem to be two different cases. You might dispense from the rule itself. You say, you don't, you don't have to follow that rule. Or you might dispense from, from some portion of the penalty for violation. You might say that rule is still a rule but we're not going to apply the full penalty to you for violating it. In some cases, it's not real easy to tell which of these two things is going on, but St. Thomas does distinguish between them, so he at least thinks that it is necessary to do that. Consider, for example, the permission of divorce in Old Testament law. According to Christ in the New, Te in the New Testament, 
Uh, it was never a part of the intention of God that, that people would divorce. It is not something that is permissible in itself. Marriage in and of itself is indissoluble. And this is especially true in the case of sacramental marriage. But, um, and yet the old law, which we are taught was given from God, permits it. Well, what's going on here? Christ says that though Moses was acting with divine authority, he permitted men to divorce their wives because of the hardness of their hearts. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Because of the hardness of their hearts. What does that mean? Because they wanted to so much? It couldn't mean that. According to some of the fathers, and Thomas Aquinas uh, follows them, there are two possible opinions about what to make of this. According to the opinion he considers more probable, this dispensation, this permission of divorce, freed men from eternal punishment, that is, from the guilt of breaking up their marriages, the spiritual consequences of eternal separation from God. They weren't going to be damned. He says it did not free them from temporal punishment, from the need for purgation. This, there was a twist in their character involved here. There was something that was going to have to be straightened out. They did suffer from behaving this way. Apparently, then, the dispensation from the indissolubility of marriage was not a dispensation from the rule. Thomas Aquinas says, Christ had said, the rule had never been different, but only from a portion of the penalty for its violation. You're released from the eternal consequences, but not the temporal consequences. That's interesting. Now, here's a different case, though. We know that the patriarchs in the Old Testament practiced polygamy. There are various places in the Old Testament that clearly indicate the superiority of monogamy. And, you know, you don't have to wait until the words of Jesus in the Gospels to know that uh, the divine plan was really ultimate, you know, the original divine plan was not polygamy. But what's going on, because it appears that God permitted this, was it just a case of toleration? Was it just a case of not punishing them fully, uh, even though it was breaking the rule? No, Thomas Aquinas says this was different. He believes that this was an actual suspension of the rule, a dispensation of the rule, not a mere suspension of the penalty for violation. He doesn't suggest that the patriarchs, in other words, were at fault in having more than one wife. Why? According to Thomas Aquinas, these were early days. God deemed it necessary to permit polygamy in order to increase the population of his people. Since before the coming of Christ, the worship of God was propagated not by evangelization, but by raising devout children. That there was a much closer connection between the propagation of the faith and the propagation of the, of the next generation than there is among us. Um, the, uh, people would learn about the true God because their parents were telling them the only practicable way to increase the population of his people was to increase the number of children, and Thomas Aquinas thinks that polygamy was permitted for this reason. Since the law requiring just one life, one wife was framed, according to Thomas Aquinas, not by man, but by God, and he makes explicit, not by being put in writing, but written on the heart, Thomas Aquinas says that a dispensation from the rule could be granted by God alone, and that's what God did. I, frankly, I find this difficult. There are some mysteries here in Thomas Aquinas's reasoning um, but this is important. Not even God can dispense from the general moral precepts 
because they are identical with that justice which is himself. It isn't that the law is above God and he can't you know, break it, but it's that we really can't distinguish between the authority of his eternal plan and himself, and he cannot contradict himself. So even he is not going to dispense from the general moral precepts. They are summarized and made explicit by the Ten Commandments. This would contradict his very intention. But he can dispense from the observation of the secondary precepts, which regulate the details of how his intention was to be honored. Well, St. Thomas says the general precepts concerning marriage, like faithfulness, faithfulness, you can't commit adultery, this has to do with the primary purpose of marriage, which is having and rearing children. By contrast, the secondary precepts concerning marriage, such as, mono such as monogamy, he, he says they have to do with its secondary purpose, which is the community of works, the community of life, between the husband and the wife. God can make an exception and allow polygamy because even though, through such things as jealousy, it damages the integrity of the family as a place to raise children and damages the, the community of works and of life between the husband and the wife, it does not utterly destroy it. By contrast, unfaithfulness does utterly destroy it. Now, surely then, the patriarchs were not as well off under polygamy as they would have been under monogamy by this reasoning. But he doesn't suggest that they suffered literal punishment, either eternal or temporal. Now, personally, I wish St. Thomas had discussed this example further. Perhaps it should be said, even if he's right about the dispensation, uh, not that partial damage to the unitive good was overlooked for the sake of the procreative good, but rather that partial damage to both the unitive and the procreative goods was overlooked for the sake of another aspect of the procreative good, having more children, which in this special case was more important. Or if that's impossible, and maybe it is impossible, then maybe this wasn't a dispensation from the rule. Maybe polygamy was not here approved, but only tolerated, and the dispensation was not from the rule, but only for a portion of the penalty for violating it. Um, I would like to understand this more deeply than I do, but for now, let's leave that aside. I just wanted to introduce this example in order to illustrate how Thomas Aquinas tries to work through, how he tries to reason through these things on his assumption that the old law really did come from God. <clears throat> I've been moving at about 120 kilometers per hour here, and uh, you know, partly because we began a little bit late, and 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 I know that everybody will be pretty eager to go to lunch a little bit sooner. But I do have some more to say here before we before we finish. Um, what I want to consider now is what might be called. This is not Thomas Aquinas's expression constitutional development in law. I mean, passing all at once from one framework of law to the other. My eyes were opened during the previous talk to the possibility that there may have been certain constitutional changes even within the Old Testament law, within Torah. Uh, and that's, uh, that has stimulated me greatly, but I'm not going to speak of that. By a constitutional change, I'm not speaking of a revolution in which even the basics change. Thomas Aquinas says the basics can't change. But I'm speaking about a development in which the change in the details 
It's not just a little change here or a little change here, but it is, comp it is comprehensive. Now, we know that there are constitutional changes in human law. In my own country, for instance, in the United States, we were first governed according to what were called the Articles of Confederation. We've had two constitutions. The first one was the Articles of Confederation, and subsequently, in a very short order, actually, these were replaced by the Constitution of the United States. The basics of a republic were preserved, or were supposed to be preserved, but there was a thoroughgoing change in the kind of republic that we had, and in particular about the relationship between the subordinate authorities of the states and the uh, overall authority of the Union. Well, like any change in law, constitutional change can only take place because of a change in the condition of the people. In the case of human law, the main change of condition which comes to mind is that the citizens of a jurisdiction advance or decline in the virtues. Okay? But when we think of natural and divine law, the main kinds of changes of condition which come to mind are the fall and the atonement. And those are big changes in condition, too. In both the condition of the, of the people, the condition of their nature changes greatly. Now, of course, at any given point in the history of a people, people may be getting better or worse. Many of my students are very skeptical. They say, how could we ever say that a population becomes better or worse? That they're more virtuous in one era or less virtuous in the other? Well, there's, there's some difficulty epistemologically in saying, you know, what is our evidence that this actually did happen, since we may not trust our sources. But surely, just as human beings can become better or worse over time, we can experience changes of heart, reforms. We can fall headlong into some corruption. You know, this, happen, this can happen on large scale to, to whole populations, can't it? Uh, and we see this repeatedly. Not all changes are the same. Uh, there have been, for instance, among us, there have been periods in our history when certain forms of sin, this form, that form, were much more widespread, although by and large in those periods people admitted that they were sinning and may have said something like, so, so what? Whereas today, it's a little bit different. People say, who's to say that there is such a sin, such a thing as sin? Um, so there are, you know, there are some changes, but we do get better or worse. By contrast, the fall happened only once. The atonement happened only once. And each goes in only one direction. By the primordial treason, of our first parents. We lost our original integrity, the wholeness, the equilibrium of our nature, and we were helpless to get it back. It would be as though even a fine surgeon, if his hands were cut off, couldn't sew them back onto himself. Someone else would have to do it. By the sacrifice of Christ, the penalty was paid and the door to restoration was open. Um, and that is the second change, that is the atonement. Now, we might think of several aspects of this. One is changes in the medicinal aspect of law. According to Thomas Aquinas, the constitutional changes in natural law, which result from the fall, are medicinal. They have to do with penalty and correction. Not just with penalty. You know, we think of penalty and we sometimes think, 
oh, you, you are suffering, suffering this because you deserve it. But there is another aspect to penalty, and that is medicinal. By suffering what you deserve, a contribution is made to your healing and to your restoration. Consider, law may impart, this is Thomas Aquinas, a tendency to us in either of two ways. The direct way in which a law imparts a tendency to us um, is that it disposes us in the literal sense to act in a certain way. The law says, do this, do this. It imparts this tendency to us. The indirect way in which it, in which it does this is that if we do not do this, then the law imparts a penalty. Pay this. Suffer this. We come, figuratively, under a different law. This is how Thomas Aquinas explains that mysterious passage in the seventh you know, in one sense it's mysterious, and in another sense it isn't mysterious, that seventh chapter of the book of, of St. Paul's letter to the Romans, in which he says that there seems to be a conflict between the law of his members, that's the other parts of him, and the law of his, in, that is in his mind, the law of God in his mind, and the law of sin in his members. In one sense, this is existentially very recognizable and, and realistic. We all suffer division within ourselves because of the sin of our first parents. But on the other hand, it's very mysterious. Why would you call a tendency to sin a law, even a law of sin? Well, it's not a law, according to Thomas Aquinas, in the sense that it commands us go and sin. It's a law in the extended sense. It's a penalty we suffer for having turned away from God in the first place. You know, I might say, what is the law? Don't exceed this speed on the road. But I might say in a secondary and extended sense, what is the law is that if you don't, you will pay a fine or suffer confiscation of your vehicle or something like that. So this is a penalty. Uh, a penalty like uh, that we suffer for having turned away from God in the first place, like the penalty of pain and bleeding that I suffer if I slash my arm. It's not just a question, do I deserve this? It's a question of natural consequences of what happens if you refuse to remain in the relationship that you were intended to remain in, if you willingly sacrifice your original integrity. Although we possess the same nature as before the fall, our nature is now in a disordered condition. Not only are our minds clouded, but our passions and appetites rebel against even what our minds continue to perceive as is really good. Certainly we do deserve this penalty, but we also suffer it, according to Thomas Aquinas, for our own good. He calls it medicinal punishment. How on earth could it be medicinal to suffer the disorder of our own nature? Well, it was medicinal because it remedied both our pride in our knowledge and our pride in our power. As to our pride in knowledge, Thomas Aquinas writes, I quote, that man was proud of his knowledge as though his natural reason could suffice him for salvation. And accordingly, in order that his pride may be overcome in this matter, man was left to the guidance of his reason without the help of a written law for a time. This is before the time of the divine law. And man was able to learn from experience that his reason was deficient. Since about the time of Abraham, man had fallen headlong into idolatry and the most shameful vices. 
So, you know, our first parents said, we can, we can figure all this stuff out for ourselves. Uh, we don't need God. We can be our own source of foundation of good and evil. We can, we can make it up as we go along, and it didn't work for them. What, uh, they had enough reason left to see that their reason was not sufficing. Once man had endured the medicinal penalty of ignorance for his pride and his knowledge, it became possible to remedy his ignorance by giving a certain chosen nation real knowledge. And the old law is imparted, and certain things become much more clear because God isn't just writing on the heart here. He's saying, listen up. I'm saying this to you in words through the mouths of my prophets. But once man had been cured of his pride and his knowledge, it also became possible to remedy the second element in his pride, the pride in his power. Because Thomas Aquinas says, I quote, after man had been instructed by the law, by Torah, his pride was convinced of his weakness. I see all these things, and I may, I may fulfill these things externally, but it isn't making me holy. This is presenting to me a standard of holiness, and I see I do not live up to this. It sharpens the longing for that holiness. It crushes his pride in his own power. He says, his pride was convinced of his weakness through his being unable to fulfill what he knew. And so eventually he was ready to receive the gospel of grace. Father Richard mentioned St. Thomas's fondness of St. Paul's comparison of the old law to the kind of servant whom the Greeks called a pedagogos. But that's what's behind this. The, the word pedagogos does not refer to a pedagogue in our sense. I dislike this translation, pedagogue. We think of a pedagogue as a teacher. People say, oh, you're a pedagogue, okay? Various of us here are pedagogues. No, uh, pedagogue meant a child leader, um, literally. It was a slave who took the children to school and monitored their behavior and kept track of them and so forth and made sure they got there on time. St. Paul says, now before faith came, we were confined under the law, Old Testament law, Torah, kept under restraint until faith should be revealed. So the law was our pedagogos until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a pedagogos. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. He says that in the same way that the pedagogos escorted the children to school and kept watch over them on the way so that they got there safely, the old law, the Torah, escorted or predisposed the people to the grace of Christ who was to come because it gave them this standard of holiness. And yet they saw that they did not actually have the power to be holy, though in and of itself it couldn't impart the power to possess true justice or righteousness. It showed them what it means and how much they needed it. So this is constitutional change. We can think, I've, I've focused so far on the, on the medicinal aspects of law, but we can also think of constitutional change in the redemptive aspects of the law, which that topic has now been ushered in. According to Thomas Aquinas, the significance of the law of grace, which he calls the new law, is not so much that it gives us a new set of divine instructions, but that it gives us the power to fulfill them. 
This is why St. Thomas writes that, quote, the new law is chiefly the grace itself of the Holy Ghost, which is given to those who believe in Christ. But it does include instructions too. So that we, why? So that we will know what we must do in order to be in this grace and to remain in it. We might illustrate these constitutional changes by considering matrimony, which according to Thomas Aquinas, this is a curious way of putting it, but it makes sense. He says matrimony has a number of different institutions. That means it has a number of different origins. It's instituted, it's brought into being in different ways by different means. Natural law as such originates or institutes matrimony and matters concerned with having and raising children and the procreative unity of the husband and wife. They are the procreative partners. There would have been marriage even if there had been no fall. But then we did fall. Natural law responded. This is the constitutional change. Natural law under the fall. It is not that we acquired a different nature a sin nature, as some present exegetes say, and so came under entirely new laws, but that rather because of the disordered condition of the good nature with which we had been endowed, a stricter discipline became necessary. So natural law after the fall gives further direction to matrimony so that its natural purposes are not unraveled by the wound of sin, which tempts us to employ our sexual powers in ways that forestall the formation of families or undermine their good order. These aspects of discipline, the need for which is evident to reason, even apart from revelation, if we're thinking straight, are determinations of the natural law into the circumstances of the fall. The rules of modern, marital modesty, for instance, uh, you know, may, may change. The Old Testament divine law, the Old Testament divine law, which Thomas calls the old law, remedies this blurring of the natural law in our minds under the circumstances of the fall, and it puts many of the most general moral precepts of the natural law in writing, including such basics as marital faithfulness. So, okay, we've got natural law as such, natural law after the fall, the Old Testament divine law. Now, civil law in general, including both Old Testament civil law, I mean, it was both divine law and civil law, but also human civil law, shapes the institution, you may say originates it in a certain sense, with respect to, quote unquote, other advantages resulting from matrimony, such as friendship and mutual service, which husband and wife render to another. Examples of such regulations might be, oh, those concerned with inheritance and spousal support. Um, in connection with divine law, Thomas Aquinas also mentions the regulations concerned with who may be married and who is ineligible, uh, degree of relationship and so forth. Okay, so we had natural law before the fall, natural law after the fall, Old Testament divine law, civil law in general. Finally, the law of grace, the New Testament divine law, which some Thomas Aquinas calls the new law. That institutes marriage, he says, in a fifth way, because it enables the union of the husband and the wife to represent and make present the mystery of Christ's union with the church. Now, faith working in love opens the door to the Holy Spirit so that not only can the wounds of sin be healed, but matrimony can be uplifted so that the husband and the wife can be joined 
not just by erotic desire, but by the same love which unites Christ with his church. Supernatural power is poured into vessels of flesh. St. Thomas says that each of these, natural law in itself, natural law after the fall, the old divine law of the, of the Old Testament, the new divine law of the New Testament, and in certain details, the civil law, quote, institutes or, or originates marriage in some sense. Although these institutions or origins, he says, I quote, are not of the same thing in the same respect, they are all linked. So for civil law to treat marriage as something contrary to what it is by nature, as of course it does in our own day, is profoundly wrong. Any such so-called so civil marriage is not actually marriage at all. Uh, notice that in this constitutional change, the advent of sacramental marriage does not change the basic rules of marriage. You still, for instance, have to be faithful. In that sense, neither natural law or divine law changes. But in three other senses, they change profoundly. First, the sacrament provides the power to fulfill these rules, if only we avail ourselves of it, which we may not. Second, it transforms the inner life of matrimony. So that it's not just an economic arrangement or something like that, but love can reign supreme. Third, it changes the signification of marriage by adding another meaning. By nature, marriage has two meanings, procreative and unitive. By grace, marriage acquires an additional meaning because it now contains the sacrament. Just because of the indivisible, indivisible union of the husband and the wife, matrimony can now represent and make present the indivisible union of Christ and his spouse, the church. And just as the union of their bodies makes the spouses biologically fruitful, so their union with Christ makes them spiritually fruitful as they pass on their faith, not only to their children as under the old law, but to the world. Let me conclude. Relativists and antinomians would be, if they acknowledge such a thing as natural law at all, which they are generally not inclined to do, would want natural and divine law to be dynamic and changeable. There are some renegade sorts of natural law writers who treat it this way, so that natural and divine law can bend and the rules can break. Uh, from a Thomistic perspective, that such a quest is destined to, add, to end in futility. God's intentions for us never change. His most basic moral requirements, the sorts of things that we find in the Ten Commandments, are fixed points of moral aspiration. And yet, the ordinances of a natural and divine law are far from being frozen and static. Indeed, not only can they change in some of the ways that human law can, by addition and subtraction, by determination, dispensation, interpretation. But they also present different faces in each of the three phases of salvation history, creation, fall, and redemption. For we have to speak of two editions of the natural law as we experienced it in its original integrity and as we experienced it afterward. And we have to speak of two editions of divine law, the preparation for the gospel and its fulfillment. Behold, God declares through the prophet Isaiah, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. 
Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And it's true. Although the natural and divine laws do not bend and do not break, they grow and they ramify. They adapt themselves to the most diverse circumstances, even to the circumstance of our own obstinacy. They do what is necessary to crush our pride and remedy our ignorance, and by grace, if we allow them, they lead us to beatitude. Thank you.